1: That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder.
2: Hey everyone, welcome to episode 323 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall, we used the last episode to look at the Iron Brigade's arrival on the battlefield and talk about how the black-hatted Westerners drove Archer's Confederates out of the Herbst Woodlot.
2: Right. While the 2nd Wisconsin drove back the rebels in front of them, The rest of the Iron Brigade not only drove back, but flanked, enveloped, and all but swallowed up the right side of Archer's line. The Lieutenant Colonel of the 19th Indiana reported, The engagement, which seemed to be raging along the whole of the brigade line, soon eased, and we found the Rebel Brigade in our front in full retreat.
0: As the Tennesseans and Alabamans scrambled back with the Federals in hot pursuit, A brief free-for-all ensued along the banks of Willoughby Run. Private W.H. Byrd of the 13th Alabama later remembered, It seemed to me there were 20,000 Yanks down in among us, hallowing for surrender, and of course I had to surrender.
2: Although fragments and detachments from Archer's Brigade successfully bolted back toward Hur's Ridge, many Confederates, like Private Moon, couldn't make good their escape. Several hundred of the rebels were taken prisoner, including a panting and exhausted James Archer, who was captured after a brief struggle just over on the far side of Willoughby Run.
0: The hard-charging Federals pursued the fleeing remnants of Archer's brigade all the way to the eastern slopes of Hur's Ridge before Iron Brigade Commander Solomon Meredith, lacking any further orders, pulled his black hat's back, back across Willoughby Run, where the regiments were sorted out after their hectic charge and formed into a line there on McPherson's Ridge. About this time, an exploding shell badly wounded Long Saul, and for him, the Battle of Gettysburg was over.
2: Meanwhile, simultaneous with the fight in the Herbst Woodlot and the pursuit across Willoughby Run, all taking place south of the Chambersburg Pike, of course, a much different battle was raging north of the road. Even as the Iron Brigade was driving Archer's men from the field, the situation north of the Chambersburg Pike wasn't going quite as well for the Federals.
0: As y'all recall, in the last show, we took a minute to talk about the rather uncertain nature of trying to report just what time something took place during the battle.
2: And now, here, we thought we should probably say something about the rather uncertain nature of reporting on how many casualties occurred during different parts of the battle. You see, while federal numbers can be reported with a fair degree of accuracy, Confederate numbers mostly have to be guessed at. For example, after the fight for the Herbst Woodlot, company sergeants on the federal side began calling the roll to get a count of casualties. So we know the 2nd Wisconsin lost 116 men in their hectic charge, while the 19th Indiana had only six men wounded and one missing.
0: But on the Confederate side, accurate casualty figures for any one action during the fighting or even for any single day of the battle are more often than not nearly impossible to calculate other than giving a rough estimate.
2: Even though their book deals with the fighting on the second day of the battle, what David L. Schultz and Scott L. Mingus, Sr. have to say on this subject is instructive. Quote, Roll calls for many Confederate units did not occur until about a month after the battle, and for units engaged on more than one day of the three-day battle, and some were engaged on all three, there is no way to know exactly which day a man may have been lost, other than if the information happens to be contained in a post-battle report or some other post-war reminiscence or writing. After-battle reports often fail to include the missing, Because the Union Army held the field after the battle, Confederate records could not accurately reflect the fate of those left behind. Whether they were killed, wounded, captured, or missing was often little more than a guess. With the tremendous loss of field and line officers over the three days of the battle, followed by the long retreat back to Virginia, the simple act of calling the roll was more than many units could manage.
0: So, just something to keep in mind as far as casualties and numbers are concerned as we go forward.
2: And then, as long as we're talking about casualties, there's something else we thought we'd bring up here, and it's that we've noticed, and we think this is fascinating, but with accounts of most of the major battles during the Civil War, you'll find stories of soldiers who had a feeling, a premonition of death. And shared it with their comrades before the battle. And guess what? Yep, they were killed during the fighting. And since we're bringing it up here, you probably won't be surprised to learn that there are more than a few of those types of stories connected to the Battle of Gettysburg.
0: For example, in their book, A Field Guide to Gettysburg, Carol Reardon and Tom Bosler shared that a sergeant in the 2nd Wisconsin named Cornelius Weaver recalled how early on July 1st, quote, "'We had not been long upon the march before Sergeant Joseph Williams of my company came forward and fell in alongside of me at the head of the column and opened up a conversation by saying that he did not feel quite right, that he felt as though something was going to happen to him,' and that he should not get through the day. I laughed at him and told him he was foolish to feel so blue, that there seemed to be no trouble ahead for the day, but if there should be, that he would come out all right, as he always had done.
2: But, as the regimental historian George Otis later recorded, quote, Sergeant Williams of I Company came to see me with a handful of personal articles and said that he believed he would be the first one shot in the battle. He said he felt it and could not shake it off. He asked me to take charge of the trinkets. I argued with him, hoping to turn his mind in another direction, but all to no avail. He insisted that his time had come. Sure enough, he was about the first shot, instantly killed."
0: Especially for those of you who might be mostly unfamiliar with the details of the Battle of Gettysburg, we realize it may seem like there have been a lot of pieces to keep track of as far as what units have been involved in the fighting that has taken place so far on the morning of July 1st. Well, hang on, because as the battle starts to really build up steam, there'll be more and more pieces to keep track of. But as we go along, we'll do our best to break down what's happening for you.
2: So far, the action has been centered on the Chambersburg Pike, which approached Gettysburg from the northwest, and now the fighting is really picking up there along McPherson's Ridge. On the Confederate side, you have Heath's division and Pender's division. Heath's division is up front, and he has deployed Davis's brigade north of the road and Archer's brigade south of it. Heath has held back his other two brigades, Pettigrew's and and Brockenbras.
0: And then on the Federal side, so far there's been John Buford's cavalrymen, of course, who managed to hold off the Confederates, just barely, until the 1st Federal Infantry could arrive on the scene. Those Federal Infantry belonged to Wadsworth's division of John Reynolds' 1st Corps.
2: Wadsworth rushed Cutler's Brigade into position to the north of, and also just to the south of, the Chambersburg Pike while the Iron Brigade went right into the fight for the Herbst Woodlot, south of the road and south of the McPherson Farm Buildings.
0: Up until this point, the action is all taking place out on the western outskirts of Gettysburg, but it's important to also keep in mind that for the Confederates, two divisions of Ewell's Corps are approaching Gettysburg from the north.
2: Remember we talked about how, on the morning of July 1st, Dick Yule had made that decision to turn Rhodes' division and Early's division toward Gettysburg. And so, even as the fighting we're looking at on McPherson's Ridge is taking place, several miles north of town, Union cavalry outposts are coming into contact with the leading elements of Robert Rhodes' division.
0: And just as happened a few hours earlier, when Heath's division had encountered the enemy horsemen on the Chambersburg Pike, here also Confederate infantry skirmishers took on dismounted Union cavalry troopers, who stuck in place as long as they could before falling back.
2: The difference here was that Rhodes' Confederates acted with a sense of urgency that had been missing from Heath's advance. Since now, Rhodes' troops could hear the distant sounds of fighting, signaling that somewhere just ahead, their Confederate comrades-in-arms were already engaged in battle.
0: Even as the Iron Brigade drove Archer's Confederates from the field south of the Chambersburg Pike, north of the road, the situation was almost exactly reversed as the Mississippians and North Carolinians of Davis's Brigade quickly gained the upper hand over Cutler's Federals.
2: That Davis's Brigade quickly gained the advantage over its opponents was a bit surprising That's because as he led his brigade into Pennsylvania in the summer of 1863, 38-year-old Joe Davis had yet to be tested in battle, nor had he been educated in the martial arts at any military school. In fact, the only reason he was a brigadier general in the Confederate Army was purely and simply because of nepotism. You see, Joe Davis' uncle was Confederate president Jefferson Davis.
0: Joe Davis had been a lawyer before the Civil War and briefly Colonel of the 10th Mississippi, but then, without ever having seen any combat, he was transferred to his uncle's staff in Richmond, where he served for about a year and a half. In September 1862, Uncle Jefferson nominated nephew Joe for a Brigadier General star, but the Confederate Senate rejected the commission.
2: It was only after Uncle Jefferson bought off a few of the objecting senators with promises of patronage that nephew Joe got his star. In any case, two of Davis's regiments, the 2nd and 11th Mississippi, were veteran outfits and had gone through blood and fire together from the peninsula to Antietam. But after Antietam, they were spliced together with two new, untested regiments, the 42nd Mississippi and 55th North Carolina, and topped with an inexperienced brigadier in the form of Joe Davis, and then sent off to the backwater of North Carolina until after Chancellorsville. Archer's Brigade only became part of Lee's Army of Northern Virginia in May 1863 when they arrived as reinforcements just prior to the invasion of Pennsylvania.
0: And so, as Davis's outfit entered Pennsylvania, it was one of the largest brigades in Robert E. Lee's army, with about 2,300 men. But two of the regiments not only mistrusted their inexperienced brigadier, but had doubts about the reliability of the outfit's other two untested regiments.
2: To make matters worse for Joe Davis, As he led his brigade into combat on the morning of July 1st at Gettysburg, he was missing one of his two veteran units, since the 11th Mississippi had been left behind at Cashtown to guard the wagons of the Corps' supply train.
0: But even without the 11th Mississippi, Davis was still taking about 1,700 men into battle on the morning of July 1st, and that counted for something— especially when they started off by engaging Buford's thin line of dismounted Union cavalry troopers.
2: Davis's line of battle advanced from Hur's Ridge toward McPherson's Ridge on a front about a half mile wide north of the Chambersburg Pike. The three regiments went forward with the 42nd Mississippi nearest the road, while to its left were the 2nd Mississippi and then the 55th North Carolina. After easily driving back Buford's cavalry troopers, Joe Davis's three regiments continued pushing forward, descending like an avalanche on the three regiments of Federal Infantry from Cutler's Brigade, which were just then deploying into lines of battle north of the railroad cut.
1: So, turn to the nerds to answer your real world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Writing of the arrival of the 1st Federal Infantry on the battlefield, Harry Fans, in his book Gettysburg, the First Day, says quote, What might have been little more than a skirmish between Union cavalry outposts and reconnoitering Confederate infantry was ballooning into a full-scale battle. Regardless of the intentions of Lee and Meade, the long marches of their armies were reaching a climax at Gettysburg. Fans continues, Cutler's Brigade and the Iron Brigade, a Brigadier General James Wadsworth's division, opened the fight. It was well for the Union cause that they did so, for both brigades and the division commander had reputations as fighters. End quote. Actually, fans may have been jumping the gun, so to speak, in assigning 56-year-old James Wadsworth a reputation as a fighter, although he would certainly emerge from Gettysburg with that status. In fact, though, he was no military man at all. He was a wealthy lawyer in New York before the Civil War, and had started off the war as a volunteer aide on the staff of Irvin McDowell. Because of McDowell's rec- recommendation, Wadsworth was catapulted in rank from volunteer aide to brigadier general in August 1861.
0: Being made commander of the Washington defenses seemed to overwhelm the inexperienced Wadsworth, but that didn't stop him from getting a field command in late December 1862 when he was given the 1st Division of the 1st Corps. However, his inexperience as a combat commander was painfully evident at the Battle of Chancellorsville, where, although his men were only lightly engaged, Wadsworth's performance wasn't stellar.
2: The men, though, liked Wadsworth because he paid attention to their needs and genuinely cared about their well-being. Colonel Charles Wainwright, commander of the 1st Corps artillery, praised Wadsworth as being, quote, active, always busy at something, and with a good allowance of common sense.
0: However, Wainwright also noted that Wadsworth, quote, knew nothing of military matters.
2: Still, at Gettysburg, James Wadsworth, without hesitation, led his division, literally on the run, right into the chaotic storm of battle. And for that, he deserves credit.
0: So, to get back to the action, remember that now we're north of the Chambersburg Pike, and after easily pushing back Buford's Union cavalry troopers there on that side of the road, Davis's three regiments of Confederate infantry are continuing to drive forward. Meanwhile, on the Federal side, Cutler's brigade is rushing onto the field.
2: Remember, the Iron Brigade was coming up behind them, so that meant Cutler's 1,600 men were the first Union infantry on the battlefield. As they swept past the seminary, Cutler divided his brigade, sending three of his regiments, the 76th New York, 56th Pennsylvania, and 147th New York, north of the Chambersburg Pike, and north of the railroad cut with instructions to form up on the right of Hall's Battery, while his remaining two regiments, the 95th New York and 14th Brooklyn, took up positions around the McPherson Farm Buildings, south of the road and to the left of Hall's guns.
0: Hall's Battery, which Rich just mentioned, is the half-dozen 3-inch Ordnance Rifles of Battery B, 2nd Main Light Artillery, commanded by Captain James Hall.
2: Exactly. As Calhoun's horse artillery withdrew from the field, John Reynolds personally positioned Hall's guns. You may remember we said that Reynolds directed Hall to position his rifles in a perilously exposed spot on the forward edge of McPherson's Ridge, just north of the Chambersburg Pike, between the road and the railroad cut. Reynolds told Hall he needed his battery to keep the enemy cannon across the way occupied, while the Union infantry were deploying. Then he would pull Hall's guns back to a safer position.
0: As Hall's guns dropped trail on McPherson's Ridge between the Pike and Railroad Cut, and opened fire on the Confederate cannon over on Hur's Ridge, the 76th New York and 56th Pennsylvania hustled to get into position on Hall's right, north of the Railroad Cut. Following behind them was the 147th New York.
2: The 76th New York and 56th Pennsylvania were still moving in Column, that is, in marching formation, as they crossed the Chambersburg Pike and double-quicked into the open fields north of the railroad cut. But they were just moments away from contact with the enemy, so Cutler quickly ordered them to deploy from Column into line of battle. The 56th got the word first and so completed their transition into line, while the 76th New York on its right was still forming up.
0: A Pennsylvanian later recalled that they could see the Confederates of Davis's brigade advancing, quote, in front and to the right, distant about 450 yards.
2: When the 56th Pennsylvania's commander, Colonel J. William Hoffman, asked, Is that the enemy? Cutler replied that it was, and Hoffman barked the command to open fire.
0: When the first of Cutler's units to open fire, the 56th Pennsylvania, cut loose against the nearby rebels, those rebels from the 55th North Carolina were quick to return the favor, and in the exchange of fire, Cutler's horse was shot out from under him.
2: In his book on Gettysburg, Alan Gelzo calls the 56-year-old Lysander Cutler, quote, one of the Army's tougher customers, end quote. Prior to the war, Cutler gained some military experience in the militia fighting Indians, but spent the majority of his time in Wisconsin as a claims investigator for a mining company, in the course of which he was constantly threatened with ambush and death by Indians and outlaws. After the start of the Civil War, Cutler received a commission as colonel of the 6th Wisconsin. One soldier under his command described him as being, quote, rugged as a wolf.
0: When Iron Brigade Commander John Gibbon was transferred to higher command in late 1862, Cutler was his choice to replace him. As y'all know from last week's show, though, Solomon Meredith's political connections meant Long Saul was given command of the Black Hat Brigade, much to Gibbon's dismay.
2: However, in March 1863, Cutler was given command of the other brigade in the division. He led it in May at Chancellorsville, where it was only lightly engaged, So Gettysburg would be Cutler's first real chance to show what he could do in battle as a brigade commander. But he was already known as a competent officer and hard fighter, so it was expected he'd give a good account of himself.
0: But at Gettysburg, Cutler almost immediately found himself in a spot of trouble. That's because, firstly, peeling off the 14th Brooklyn and 95th New York to take up position around the McPherson Farm Buildings, south of the Chambersburg Pike, meant that Cutler had perhaps a thousand men with whom to confront Joe Davis's 1700 Confederates north of the road. So the Federals here on this part of the battlefield would be operating under a significant numerical disadvantage.
2: Then, secondly in a reverse of the situation that was unfolding between Archer's rebels and the Iron Brigade to the south in the Herbst Woodlot, where the Federals outflanked the right side of Archer's line. Here, the left portion of Davis's line, in the form of the 55th North Carolina, extended well beyond the northern end of Cutler's line, where the 76th New York immediately found itself in trouble.
0: In that map, in your mind's eye, picture the 76th New York out on the right flank, or northern end of the federal line. When Cutler's three regiments north of the railroad cut deployed there, they were positioned from left to right, with the 147th New York closest to the cut, the 56th Pennsylvania in the center, and then the 76th New York was at the northern end of the federal line.
2: However, the northern end of Cutler's line was up in the air. That is, there was no natural feature like a stream or hill or patch of woods on which to anchor that flank. So the men of the 76th New York knew they were in trouble when they saw that the 55th North Carolina's battle line extended well beyond their right. The best, the commander of the 76th, Major Andrew Grover could do was refuse or bend back that northern end of his line to face the looming threat from that direction.
0: The Colonel of the 55th North Carolina, John Connolly, could see that the Federals across the way were in a predicament, so he called for his men to fix bayonets and prepare to charge. But as he personally took up the regiment's flag and started forward, Connolly was hit almost at once in the arm and hip. When the 55th Senior Major bent over the badly wounded colonel to catch some last words, Connolly told him, quote, Pay no attention to me, take the colors and keep ahead of the Mississippians, end quote, as though they were in a foot race and not engaged in armed combat.
2: A sergeant in the 76th New York remembered, quote, After we got into the musketry, the men fell like sheep on all sides of me. With the advancing Confederates lapping around its exposed right flank, the 76th New York was taking fearful losses. Its commander, Major Grover, was killed. Cutler, who was with his northern two regiments, later praised the New Yorkers and Pennsylvanians, reporting they, quote, Fought as only brave men can fight, and held their ground until ordered to fall back.
0: After perhaps 20 minutes, that order to fall back came from Wadsworth. Wadsworth wanted Cutler's three regiments north of the railroad cut to withdraw to the cover afforded by the trees of a woodlot behind them, Sheeds Woods.
2: When they received the order to pull back, the 56th Pennsylvania and 76th New York, apparently retreated in considerable disorder. In his book on Gettysburg, Noah Andre Trudeau writes, Members of the two regiments would later tend to portray a more orderly withdrawal than was witnessed by others present. In a non-standard formation, incapable of immediate further service, the battered survivors tumbled back into the woods.
0: You may have noticed that so far, we've only talked about the withdrawal of two of Cutler's regiments that were fighting here north of the railroad cut, and that's because the third regiment, the 147th New York, didn't receive the order to pull back. Well, actually, that's not true. The order to withdraw did reach the regiment, but no sooner had the 147th's commander, Lieutenant Colonel Francis Miller, received the message, then he suffered a head wound and then was carried off the field by his panicked horse.
2: Command of the regiment passed to Major George Harney, and since he didn't know about the order to fall back, the 147th New York fought on. But with the regiments to their right gone, the men of the 147th, nicknamed the Plowboys, soon found themselves under attack on two fronts with the 42nd mississippi advancing from the west and the second mississippi and 55th north carolina coming at them from the north
0: on the confederate side it was at this point that joe davis began to lose control of his victorious brigade two of his three regimental commanders had fallen and without a firm guiding hand from above Subordinate officers were now taking matters into their own hands. Companies scattered in pursuit of the Yankees retreating toward Sheeds Woods, while others were maneuvering to attack the beleaguered 147th New York, and still others had their sights set on capturing the guns of Hall's Battery, there just north of the Chambersburg Pike.
2: The dramatic collapse of the right end of Wadsworth's line, north of the Chambersburg Pike, threatened Hall's battery with capture. To a Civil War infantryman, the honor and glory attached to the capture of an enemy cannon was second only to that accorded to the seizure of an enemy battle flag. And so, when they realized the Federal battery in the open ground between the road and railroad cut was vulnerable, groups of Confederate soldiers started moving in that direction. Captain Hall would later write of his astonishment when a line of rebel infantry abruptly, quote, rose up on my right and front at a distance of not more than 50 yards.
0: Hall managed to swing the guns of his center and right sections sharply around and opened fire on the rebel infantry who were danger close and already shooting at his gunners and battery horses. Blast of double canister drove his tormentors back to the shelter of the railroad cut, but Hall knew he couldn't hold his position for long, now that his infantry support had disappeared. What had happened, Hall wondered angrily, to Cutler's regiments who were supposed to be protecting his right.
2: Hall would level bitter accusations of cowardice at Cutler's troops, who he thought had run off and abandoned his battery But in fact, unknown to Hall, in the fields nearby, but obscured by the smoke of battle and the concealing wheat, the men of the 147th New York were still fighting and dying. The plowboys found themselves caught in an ever more destructive crossfire. Private Francis Peace wrote, Balls whistled about our heads like hail. The men very soon began to fall very fast, and many wounded.
0: Captain James Coey said the sound of a Confederate volley passing over his head, quote, could almost be felt, not the zip of bullets, but a rushing, forcing sound.
2: At last, though, Wadsworth realized the desperate plight of the 147th and sent an aide galloping off with the order for the plowboys to retreat. Amidst a storm of bullets, the staff officer reined up and delivered the order to pull back to Major Harney.
0: Harney wasted little time in obeying, shouting the thoroughly unofficial but highly practical command, In retreat! Double quick! Run!
2: At that, the New Yorkers, those who still could, that is, fled for their lives. One of the plowboys later admitted, We was ordered to retreat, which we did at a fast rate. We left an awful sight of dead and wounded on the field as we retreated.
0: The color sergeant of the 147th, John Hinchcliffe, was shot dead just as the New Yorkers turned to run, and the colors probably would have been captured by the enemy had not another sergeant, William Wyburn, quote, retraced his steps under a severe fire, rolled from off the flag the dead color sergeant, and brought it off.
2: The men of the 147th New York, from Oswego County, just north of Syracuse, may have been nicknamed the Plowboys, but on July 1st at Gettysburg, they fought like tigers. They went into battle that morning 380 strong and lost 76 killed, 144 wounded, and 70 captured, a casualty rate of 76%.
0: The Plowboy's last stand bought enough time, just barely, for Hall's battery to get away. With the Confederates closing in quickly on his pieces, Hall ordered his guns to limber up and withdraw, with the men and horses running a terrible gauntlet of bullets as they made their harrowing escape, and somehow losing just one gun.
2: And that seems like a good spot for the end of this episode. With the right end of the Federal's line, north of the Chambersburg Pike, having collapsed, the situation appeared grim for the Yankees. But fortunately for them, Davis's Confederates were almost as disorganized by victory as they were by defeat. And, as we'll see next time, this, along with the fact Archer's Brigade has been driven from the field, will allow Cutler's other two regiments— the ones south of the Chambersburg Pike at the McPherson Farm Buildings, to turn and confront the danger looming north of the road. And along with the 6th Wisconsin, they'll rather dramatically turn the tables on Davis's victorious brigade and send the rebels reeling back. Yes, dear listeners, up next is the fight at the railroad cut.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Gettysburg, The First Day by Harry W. Fans.
2: As some of you might guess, this is the first, but not the last, Gettysburg book by Harry Fans that we're going to recommend during this story arc. Anyway, don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.com.
0: As we bring the curtain down on this show, we want to give a big shout out to the newest members who have signed up over on Patreon to support the podcast. And that would be Dan, Kyler, and Michael R.
2: Cody, Lee, John, and Michael C.
0: Lydia, and last but not least, Junior.
2: And thanks to Evan for his donation.
0: And thanks to Jeff for the book. All
2: right. All right. And then to everyone still listening to my voice, our voices, thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time for the fight at the railroad cut. But until then, take care.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye.